0: One of the most central concepts and claims that is being made in Friedrich Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals very early on in Essay 1 of the work, and something that runs throughout the rest of of Nietzsche's works as well, is this notion that there is a primary form of what he calls valuation, Wertung, right, giving values to things in relation to each other, which is a distinctively human activity, and that we have lost sight of of this And so he's using this at the start as a foil to those English psychologists who see doing good things for other people, doing things that are beneficial, that help other people, as then being identified as good because the utility says, no, 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 that's not the case at all. You've actually got not just the cart before the horse, but you don't even have the horse. As a matter of fact, you're completely confused about who's doing the value judgment. It's the person judging him or herself as good in relation to other things that essentially gets things started and so he tells us that the strong or the nobles he also uses the word aristocracy that these are the ones who judge themselves as good in relation to the others who are not good and they're just identified as bad and interestingly Nietzsche is going to turn to language and he's going to say you've missed out on your opportunities to do the kind of historical research that would have benefited you, languages go back a very long way and we do have a lot of material to work with. So he says, the signpost to the right road for me was the question, what was the real etymological, that is, you know, in terms of words, significance of the designation for good coined in the various languages? And then this is the insight that he's drawing from this. I found they all led back to the same conceptual transformation that everywhere noble aristocratic in the social sense is the basic concept from which good in the sense of with aristocratic soul noble with a soul of a high order with a privileged soul necessarily developed and so he's saying that we can find this in going back to ancient languages and we can find this in pretty much every culture along with this he says that this ran parallel with another development in which common, plebeian, low are finally transformed into the concept bad. And he gives an example of this the German word Schlecht, which is identical with Schlicht, plain or simple. And he says, compare Schlechtweg plainly, Schlechterding simply, and originally designated the plain, the common man, as yet with no inculpatory implication and simply in contradistinction to the nobility. And he says, about the time of the Thirty Years' War, this meaning changed the one now customary. And he says, with regard to a moral genealogy, this is a fundamental insight that our language itself in the past can reveal to us what the primary evaluation, where good came from in its first sense. So he goes on and he says, In the majority of cases, these ancient people would designate themselves simply by their superiority in power as the powerful, the masters, the commanders, or the most clearly visible signs of this. For example, the rich, the possessors. He says they do it also by a typical character trait, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But there's also a number of other important linguistic discussions going on here. So we should jump ahead to chapter 10 of the first essay He tells us that the basic concept, you know, is being displayed in calling ourselves we noble ones, we good, beautiful, happy ones. And he says, we should not overlook the almost benevolent nuances that the Greek nobility bestows on all the words it employs to distinguish the lower orders from itself. How they're continuously mingled and sweetened with a kind of pity, consideration, and forbearance. He says, if you want to designate the common man, you call them unhappy pitiable. I and mean, he's got examples of this delos in Greek, delaios, poneros, moktheros, you know, weak in the last sense, right? The last two of which properly designate the common person as a work slave and beast and burden. And he also, you know, talks about how they describe themselves through language of beauty, kalos, right? Being powerful, being able to do that. Let's turn then to this key character trait that he identifies. And this really drives home the message, I think. He tells us that they designate themselves by a typical character trait. And here we actually have several different concepts that are being associated and combined with each other. So, what is the character trait? They call themselves, for instance, the truthful. And this is so above all of the Greek nobility, whose mouthpiece is Theognos. The the root of the word coined for this, "esthlos," signifies one who is, who possesses reality, who is actual, who is true. Then with a subjective turn, The true as the truthful. In this phrase of conceptual transformation, it becomes a slogan and catchword of the nobility and passes over entirely into the sense of noble as distinct from what? The lying common person, the clever person, the one who's going to try to get over on you, which is what Theognos takes him to be. And this is actually quite important. There's this sense in which the powerful, the good in this sense are more people are more real than the common mass and herd. And when we wanna think about this in terms of truth, right? we have to be very careful not to tie this into something like a truth is, is the way things exactly are. He brings up the fact that the ordinary, you know, actually not ordinary, but the, the average, let's say, noble person probably has no idea what's really going on in the lives of the common people. That doesn't mean that they're lacking truth except in that sense. It's having the truth of things that matter, things that are important, Nietzsche's getting at. And he says that very often they do get things wrong, not just about the lives of commoners, but even about other noble people or about themselves. But that doesn't prevent them from being the esthlos, the truthful, those who have fuller being in this valuation, right? He also talks about this valuation growing and doing so, here we go, this is quite good, he he says it's not reactive at all, it's instead spontaneous and active. It acts and grows spontaneous, it seeks its opposite only so as to affirm itself more gratefully and triumphantly. It's negative concept low common bad is only a subsequently invented pale contrasting image in relation to its positive basic concept filled with life and passion through and through right when the noble mode of valuation, like he says blunders and sins against reality it only does so in respect to the sphere with which it's not sufficiently familiar against the real knowledge of which it's it's guarded itself or some circumstances it misunderstands the sphere it, it despises of the lower orders right. So the strong are literally imposing this value judgment onto the weak, you're bad, we're good. And there's room in that for somebody who is within the class of the weak and the common class to rise, to display themselves as actually having strength, as having nobility of soul, as having these capacities to enter into the lists. And if they survive, they will be the strong, Right. Whereas if they don't or if they never make any move, well then they're obviously the weak and bad and you can just keep on identifying them as that. Relations with others. So the relations with the ordinary common people, the masters, the strong, are exploitative. They dominate. They take more than you know what we would call their fair share. They view it as their fair share. They're not really worried about the problems that ordinary people face. Or if they are, it's gonna be pity descending from on high and deigning to do something about that. They don't view the weaker as having some sort of claim upon them that they could be bound by now interestingly it's not as if they're all in one grand conspiracy to impose this upon the lower classes as we see like in sci-fi shows or things like that where there's a lot of uh, social stratification they actually fight with each other quite a lot and they do other things with each other if you ever you know think about homer's nobles in his stories in the odyssey and the iliad and you get a good conception of what we're talking about here so again in chapter 10 there's a great discussion of this here he tells us that they you know they're sort of driven by a kind of spontaneity they're held in check between equals right inter pares is how he uses the term and he tells us too that they can have resontamount but they let it go he says resontamount if it should appear in the noble man consummates and exhausts itself in an immediate reaction and therefore does not poison to be incapable of taking one's enemies, one's accidents, even one's misdeeds, seriously for very long, that is the sign of the strong, full nature in whom there is an excess of the power to form, to mold, to recuperate, and to forget So, you can have enemies, you can have rivals. As a matter of fact, you probably need to have them, but you don't, you don't hate them with a hate that goes to the very depth of your soul and prompts you to obtain secret revenge against them. You could say that the old adage, revenge is a dish best served cold. That's not what the stronger nobles think. They think, well, if you're gonna take revenge, take it right away. You know, make it open, make it clear. And a little bit later on in 11, he says that here's one thing we shall be the last to deny. He who knows these good men only as enemies knows only evil enemies. And the same men, now this is the nobles, who are held so sternly in check inter pares by custom, respect, usage, gratitude, and even more. And so let's, let's dwell on that for a moment. Custom, respect, usage, and gratitude. There are mores that guide and shape and form the action of the noble in relation to each other if they're equals, right? They could treat each other as commoners and thereby try to shame or lower the other person, but generally that's going to be frowned upon He goes on and he also talks about them displaying mutual suspicion and jealousy, right? These are people who jockey for position, who try to one-up each other. That's part of their world. That's part of their problem. They're more interested in that than they are in the people who, say, work for them on their estates. They're going to have rivals. They're going to have enemies. They're going to have conflict. But they can also do something else, which is, we would probably say, more positive. He says, they show themselves so resourceful and consideration, self-control, delicacy, loyalty, pride, and friendship towards each other. Now, this is a little bit of an idealization there, because we can all think of some rich person who's really a prick, right? And doesn't, never learned any of that sort of stuff and just shows entitlement towards even their own peers and, you know, is regarded as a jerk by everybody. But there is this possibility developing from this abundance of strength, this abundance of energy, this willingness to get out there and drive and dominate. It makes it possible for there to be loyalty, pride, friendship, right? He also talks about self-control. These are not necessarily people who are just indulging their desire to dominate at every single point. Certainly not among their own class. Now, it's different, he says, when we're looking at their relations to the outsider. And here we have to think of, we've got the strong, right? And they have their own sort of class or whatever you want to call it in the society. We have the weak, the commoners. And then we have those who are outside of that society, outside of that culture. Those who he talks about as, for example, barbarians from the perspective of the Greeks, right? He tells us that all of these nobilities, whether Roman, Arabian, Germanic, Japanese, Homeric heroes, Scandinavian, Vikings, they all share this need to go out to the wilderness and fight with somebody who's different, somebody who's not of their group. And he says, when that happens... All bets are off. I'll just read you this passage. Once they go outside where the strange the stranger, the alien, the fremd, right, is found. They are not much better than uncaged beasts of prey. There they savor a freedom from all social constraints. They compensate themselves in the wilderness for the tension engendered by protracted confinement and enclosure within the peace of society. They go back to the innocent conscience of the beast of prey as triumphant monsters who perhaps emerge from a disgusting procession of murder, arson, rape, and torture, exhilarated and undisturbed of soul as if it was no more than a student's prank, convinced they have provided Provided the poets with a lot more material for song and praise. And he talks about this as the beast of prey, the splendid blonde beast prowling about in search of spoil and victory. And here's where he talks about all these different nobilities. He says it's the noble races that have left behind them the concept barbarian wherever they have gone. And I think that there's probably something to this, and I would I would actually say that, you know, Nietzsche's notion of noble races is probably way too shrunken if we look at world history. We do see this dynamic playing itself out on pretty much every Every continent, whether or not this is an accurate depiction of how things played out in history all the time, we can put that aside. He does actually bring up Pericles' funeral oration. And it's well worth thinking about this. He says Pericles specifically commends the rathumia of the Athenians, this ease of mind, this willingness to engage in thumotic activities in relation to others. And so that's another sort of wrinkle to this. So we've got this valuation that not only makes the Nobles, the good, good in the sense of the powerful, those who can exert themselves, those who have true existence and exist in relation to each other, but also makes the commoners the bad, the ordinary, the weak, the people who can't assert themselves, but it's also oriented towards the outsider as well. And sometimes you can find societies where the commoners are treated as if they're outsiders, like, you know, the Spartans with their, their helots, prime example there. So this is the primary valuation according to Nietzsche, he's not actually saying we should all revert to this, that this would be an awesome thing, but he is saying that this is where the concept of good first makes its appearance in the languages of human beings and the way their societies stratify themselves, stratify themselves through the agency of those who become the ones on top. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible.